Uh, I want to begin by apologizing for this scratchy voice that <coughs> my cold has left me with. Um, uh, it's not painful for me, but it's probably very painful for you, and uh, I, I do apologize uh, for that. Uh, I'm delighted to, to be here, not only because of my friendship for many years with Tom Cronin and <coughs> the many benefits I've received from talking with him and reading him over the years, but also because it's the first time I've seen former Governor Dick Celeste for a long time, and uh, he was one of a remarkable group of, uh, I think they were probably all men at that, at that point, who found themselves in running state houses around the country uh, at the same time, and even in a group that had uh, a number of really notable uh, figures in it, uh, your president, Dick Celeste, stood out. And he was one of the people that uh, I wrote about uh, in a book that I started in 78 when I realized I was going to have to cover a whole new generation of politicians. And I be thought it behooved me to get to know some of these people a little bit better. So I wrote a book about the baby boomer politicians who were then just emerging around the country. And I had a lot of good quotes from those interviews, but the best quote of all was the one that I saved for the last chapter of the book and the last, indeed, page of the book, and that came from Dick Celeste. So I was delighted to see him again out, out here. Uh, this is uh, going to be an informal uh, occasion, I trust, and I look forward to hearing your views and your questions when we get to that, uh, that part of the, uh, the program. Uh, the, uh, uh, this year that we are living through, uh, presidential politics, has been uh, in some ways a disaster for uh, those of us in the press. Uh, the politicians have done much better than the journalists have, and that has something to do with their relative abilities, I would have to, have to say. But uh, we have made more wrong judgments already this year. Uh, I don't know what the comparison would be. Maybe when uh, General Custer decided that Little Bighorn would be <laughs> good place to meet up with the Sioux, I, but we have been so wrong so, so often. Uh, I've had two absolutely traumatic nights already this, and I'm sure it will not be the last of the, of the year, uh, not because of the results, but because both the night of the New Hampshire primary and then more recently the night of uh, Texas and Ohio voting I started out writing one story and halfway through the night realized that the damn voters were writing something else <laughs> and threw that away and uh, I, it was one of those times you didn't really want to look at the paper the next morning because you couldn't remember at that point how late at night it was when you finally kind of got a grip on reality. But it's been a very bad year for us in the press. But more important, and certainly far offsetting that, is that I think it's been a very good year 
for the politicians and for the country. Uh, this campaign has had its moments of uh, kind of uh, uh, ugly, but for the most part, looking back on it now, with this kind of long hiatus before Pennsylvania votes on the 22nd, uh, there have been relatively few real cheap shots in, in the campaign. Uh, you could make the case that important topics still remain to be explored and dealt with substantively, but I believe we will get to that in the general election of the campaign. And the great news is that this is a campaign which, as you all know, has really caught the country's imagination. People are engaged in a way that we haven't seen for a very long time, and particularly for people my vintage, it's been wonderful to see young people really caught up in the excitement of this campaign, and several of them sitting down in front have been working in the campaign, and I expect many others of you that I haven't had a chance uh, to meet uh, uh, yet are doing the same thing. Uh, for all the vagaries of this cockamamie primary calendar and system that we have, I have to say that I think the voters have done a very good job of weeding out the field, reducing the numbers, and that the candidates who have survived this pretty rigorous shakeout are, are to me at least, a very impressive group. I want to start on the Republican side and then move to the Democratic side and then I hope talk a little bit about uh, what remains and the general election, which will ultimately be the best story of all. Uh, the Republicans were facing an odd situation. It's rare that we have an incumbent party and an incumbent administration where the presumed candidate in waiting is not the vice president of the United States. But the Republicans began with no clear favorite. Once we in the press had pronounced John McCain dead, uh, uh, the Republicans began a fairly extensive search for somebody else who could play the role of front runner. Uh, the first uh, claimant of that title was Rudy Giuliani. Uh, I knew him much less well than I knew any of the others running. For some reason, I had never covered his campaigns in New York City, and I had really no acquaintance with him. When I crossed paths with him, finally, up in New Hampshire and then uh, on another trip in Iowa, I was really surprised to see what an awkward campaigner he was. I just assumed that anybody who had been th put through the paces by New York voters and the New York press corps would be a pretty comfortable uh, performer. And when I started traveling a bit with uh, uh, Giuliani, uh, I was surprised that he really was not very comfortable, not seemed more ill at ease than at home, just the kind of face-to-face -face gatherings with voters that you expect. Uh, I remember at a house party up in New Hampshire in where there's nothing very formal about it, Giuliani began his remarks by saying, 
in a very stentorian tone, I am running for President of the United States. And the kind of unspoken message was, you want to make something out of it? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was not what you would call a terribly ingratiating uh, uh, performance. And it, frankly, never got, got better. Uh, uh, then the Republicans took a pretty good look at Mitt Romney. Uh, he was a very good candidate in two races of his that I covered in Massachusetts, losing race against Ted Kennedy for the Senate and then his winning campaign uh, for governor. Uh, he certainly looked the part of a president. He had good money, including his own, and he had a rational plan. This is a man who has made a lot of dough by being very systematic and rational in his analysis. And he brought those skills to the presidential campaign. That Romney headquarters in Boston ran like clockwork. Uh, you would go in there as a reporter, and they would be ready to hand you a schedule of your meetings with various staff members. Uh, they were certainly well organized. But the longer Governor Romney was in the campaign, the more voters came to feel that there was something missing. And what they sensed was missing was a kind of hard core of conviction and belief that they could relate to and that they could see would guide him if he became president of the United States. Uh, then when that uh, didn't immediately take off, there was a flurry about former Senator Fred Thompson. Remember that he was in the race for a while? Uh, and uh, Fred Thompson completely fooled me. Uh, just before he made his formal announcement, uh, his press person called and said that the uh, senator would like to have lunch. And I said, I'd like to do that because I haven't talked with him once since he left the Senate. And so I went out to McLean, and he walks in by himself, no staff, we sit down for a lunch that stretched two hours. I mean, talked about everything. And he completely fooled me because what he said and what I wrote out of the luncheon was that he was coming into the race with all guns blazing. He said, in effect, there's no reason for a man like me, my age, young family, good television career, to do this except if you're really going to talk about the issues that matter. And I don't hear him being talked about by the other candidates. And he was talking about things like the entitlement challenge, the farm row program, and how it's become overgrown and so on. And he completely convinced me that he was going to really rattle the cage when he came into the race. Why was I wrong? Uh, he did not fool the voters at all. They listened and they looked, and what they saw was something much more conventional, much more unexciting uh, to them. Uh, then we had in Iowa a flurry about Mike Huckabee, uh, certainly a man with plenty of convictions and clear uh, principles, but uh, uh, relatively unknown at the start of the campaign, but I knew through uh, 10 years of watching him, 
as governor of Arkansas that, like his predecessor, Bill Clinton, there was a lot of substance to this man beyond being a preacher and a fundamentalist. Uh, he was as knowledgeable and insightful, I think, on two issues that matter a lot to me, education and health care, as anybody in the race on either side. Uh, he had been impressive as the chairman of the National Governors Association because he was trusted by governors of both parties, and they admired him, as I did, uh, at, the start of, at the start of the race. But uh, he had identified his candidacy with a particular segment of the Republican electorate, the religious right, and short of funds and uh, really with almost, uh, let's throw it in within the family kind of campaign structure, uh, he was never able quite to get past the, the, the barriers. So in the end, after all of the others had kind of had their moment and they had withered and died uh, and joined the, I don't know, five or six others whose names probably only three people in the audience would even remember at, at this point. There, amazingly enough, was John McCain, the man who had seemingly collapsed when his campaign money disappeared. Half of his senior staff or more took off and he was somehow back from the bed, dead. How did he do it? Well, if it was not for that personal trait of his, the sheer willpower, the unwillingness to accept defeat or humiliation, uh, I don't think any other candidate possibly could have done that. Uh, he was helped in some respects by the fact that the campaign was going to begin in Iowa and New Hampshire. Iowa was a disaster for John McCain because of his principled stand on immigration, which had alienated a lot of voters in Iowa who were going through the kind of culture shock that happens, when, particularly in a rural state, when suddenly a lot of people who don't look like us, talk like us, or necessarily think like us, suddenly show up with their kids in town and say, here we are, we're your new neighbors. Iowa did not react well to that experience, and they took it out on John McCain. But New Hampshire was something different. New Hampshire has had a love affair with John McCain for many, many years now. And it's one of those phenomenon which you can recognize as a reporter, even if you can't quite explain it. Uh, I remember thinking back in the 90s that watching Bill Clinton campaign in California, you realize that Bill Clinton was really a Californian who had been dropped off by the stork by mistake in Arkansas. He was totally at home in California. And in the same way, John McCain was totally at home in New Hampshire. I don't know what explains it, but the phenomenon was clearly 
there to, to see. Uh, he put on a campaign in New Hampshire with a handful of people left working for him. Uh, they did more than 100 town meetings. He did well in two early debates that were held in New Hampshire. And it was in New Hampshire, obviously, that he began to put his campaign back together. Uh, he got some breaks. Rudy Giuliani early took a look at New Hampshire, thought he could do well, invested some money and time there, but then backed off because he didn't like what he saw up there. McCain uh, got uh, helped also uh, by the fact that uh, uh, the organization that he put together in New Hampshire never disappeared, even when everything else was going by the boards. And when he won New Hampshire, it kind of put him back in the race. South Carolina was next, and there it was Mike Huckabee, who had done a great favor for McCain by taking Mitt Romney down in Iowa. That was the first step of the McCain strategy, if you want to call it that. Stay out of Iowa, stay out of Huckabee's name, hope that somebody will take some of the flesh off of Mitt Romney before we get to New Hampshire. And that worked out perfectly from his uh, point, of, point of view. Uh, it, South Carolina was a much tougher challenge for McCain because, as you all remember, it was in South Carolina in 92 that George Bush turned it around on McCain after losing New Hampshire by 19 points. He beat McCain soundly in South Carolina. But this was a different year. Uh, he had, was no longer campaigning as an outsider. Uh, he had picked up significant establishment support. I went around with him in one day in South Carolina when he was campaigning with Jack Kemp. And equally significant, though probably not as meaningful outside South Carolina, was the fact that Carol Campbell, their former governor, who had been the real architect of Bush's comeback in the 92 primary, had died in the interim, and there was nobody like him in South Carolina politics who posed that kind of a threat to John McCain. Uh, he won South Carolina with an assist from Fred Thompson, who, by staying in the race that long, took probably the votes that could have given Huckabee uh, first place in South Carolina. And then it came Florida, where McCain had the assistance of the very popular governor, Charlie Crist, and Senator Mel Martinez. And then we watched, he watched with joy as Rudy Giuliani, who had by that point put all of his marbles on Florida, wound him up in a badly beaten position, and the next day was out of the race. In effect, the Republican race was over at that, that point in the process. Now, I want to switch, if now, to the Democrats in their nomination fight. Uh, one of the things that obviously has, was working for the Democrats was that after the 06 election, uh, 
it looked to be a very good year for the Democrats going into 08. And that meant that they were going to attract a strong field of candidates. And they had, if anything, one of the strongest fields I've ever covered in one party or the other. Uh, Joe Biden, the senator from Delaware, Mr. Foreign Policy, strong record on Iraq, equally strong record on crime and civil rights, and had been at the center of several judicial nominations. Uh, he had aborted an earlier campaign 20 years ago, but this time he looked as if he could be a real player. Chris Dodd from Connecticut, former party chairman of under Bill Clinton, uh, a one-vote loss for the position of leadership in the Senate Democrats, a friend of the Kennedys, uh, the uh, wonderfully personable guy, and uh, a real fighter for the whole democratic domestic agenda. Bill Richardson, now the governor of New Mexico, but before that a member of the House, uh, held two cabinet positions under President Clinton, Energy and the United Nations ambassadorship, a warm, funny, likable guy. And John Edwards, last time vice presidential candidate, uh, but uh, uh, one man who probably spent more time preparing for Iowa and New Hampshire than anybody else in either party. In a certain sense, John Edwards never stopped running after he, <coughs> he and John Kerry lost in 04 and he worked those two states particularly as effectively and as hard as any candidate in the field. He emphasized this time the populist side of his campaign message, uh, but he had the backing of the trial lawyers and uh, some of organized labor. So these were all very credentialed candidates. Uh, but in the end, it turned out None of them could find any leverage at all to get into the race, let alone to begin to threaten the other two candidates who were running. John Edwards, like Joe Lieberman before him, found that being the losing candidate on a vice presidential ticket does not necessarily enhance your standing in the eyes of your party. Uh, Bill Richardson, in a funny way, was punished, I think, by being just too down home, too likable, and not, quote, unquote, presidential enough. And the main problem that they faced, like all the other candidates on the Democratic side, was that there was just not enough oxygen to breathe at the top of that Democratic field because Senator Clinton was absorbing so much of the resources, energy, and attention that Democratic voters and politicians were prepared to give this, this year. All of the others first measured their chances against Clinton, and it was only later, as Obama began to emerge, that they also had to figure out how to get past Barack Obama. Senator Clinton was, in my view, legitimately the early favorite for the Democratic nomination. 
She possesses the best brand name in democratic politics. She shared in the greatest triumphs of the Democratic Party's recent history, two elections and one defeat of an impeachment effort. Uh, she'd been credentialed by two victories as in New York and also by the fact that she had established herself in the eyes of her colleagues in the Senate as a serious, hardworking, substantive senator. Uh, she did very well uh, in the Senate of overcoming the kind of stigma that always attaches to the celebrity candidate who comes to that body that is full of egos and not terribly eager to welcome another ego into the, into the group. But she also had, obviously, a great deal of appeal to women voters who are the majority of the Democratic constituency. She had a wealth of allies and contributors. Uh, and at this race began, the assumption that you were working on the part of every other Democratic candidate was that Hillary would be in the finals. And the question was, since she was unlikely to get all of the votes in the early contest, the question, as they saw it, was who will emerge as the possible alternative to Hillary Clinton when they get to the Super Tuesday and the later, later events? Well, very few people guessed that that alternative would be a man named Barack Obama. Uh, as I've mentioned to some of you uh, privately, uh, I met him first about nine or ten years ago, uh, thanks to the father of one of the classmates that I met here, David Axelrod, who's a political consultant in Illinois that I've known for many years. We were having lunch on my trip out there, and, and somehow in the course of the lunch, Axelrod said, do you know Barack Obama? And I said, no, who's Barack Obama? And his answer, as I recall, was, well, he's a state senator from Chicago, but he's not going to be state senator forever. You ought to get to know him. And because I've known him and come to trust his political judgments, I called Senator Obama's Chicago office when I got back to my hotel. Turned out he was in Chicago that day, not Springfield, and we agreed to meet for lunch the next day. Michelle Obama came up from her job at the University of Chicago to join us, and I was blown away by her as much, at least as much as by him, but they were obviously a very impressive young couple. And having met him that one time, I watched with interest his Senate race uh, in Illinois. I didn't cover any of that, but between watching it from a distance and reading now a very good book about that race by a Chicago Tribune reporter, uh, I see that he was able to use that Senate campaign, primary campaign, in a very creative way to position and prepare himself for the primaries that we are still going through for president. Uh, in that uh, campaign, uh, 
he had two opponents. One of them was a veteran party leader, the other a very wealthy businessman who was self-financing his race. The first uh, man, Tom Hines, was the early favorite. He had the establishment backing, the labor unions were with him, and he had been around the track in statewide races before in Illinois and had done well. And uh, the second man, uh, uh, a man named Hill, uh, was uh, prepared, he said, to spend a lot of his money to beat Tom Hines. And the only question really early in the race was, can he do, in effect, what John Corzine did in New Jersey? Can he spend so much that he can, in effect, buy himself a Senate seat? Well, what happened as the campaign developed was that uh, Obama unfolded a brilliant strategy. First, uh, he uh, spent week after week in downstate Illinois, small town, rural areas, just meeting voters one-on-one -on -one or in very small groups, letting them get to know him. And for much of the campaign, he was not really very visible, particularly in the Chicago media, because he left that for, for later. Uh, he did not get involved personally at all in what became a really nasty campaign when Blair Hull, the millionaire, decided he was going to take down Tom Hines and therefore be the Democratic nominee. And they got into a real slugfest while Obama stayed way above, above the, the fray. Uh, <coughs> second thing that Obama did was to successfully mobilize the Chicago Democratic wealthy community, much of it Jewish, and raise the money from that part of the constituency and put almost all that he raised into a television fund that would be not employed or dispersed until very late stage of the campaign. <coughs> Obama and his managers uh, knew one thing that nobody else knew. When they tested uh, with a focus group uh, the uh, excerpts from various public television panels and other kind of media events and some of the uh, early debates uh, there with a focus group. The one that I was told about was with middle-aged and elderly Chicago and suburban white housewives. And the question that was asked of them after they'd looked at excerpts of the campaign, three campaigns uh, performing in public events, the questions they were asked was, who does each of these candidates remind you of? And the answer that they got back from this particular focus group was that uh, uh, Blair Hull, who was a handsome young man, reminded the motors of Danny Quayle. Uh, uh, I've forgotten who uh, uh, the, the second candidate uh, reminded them of, but when they asked, who does Barack Obama remind you of, 
The answer came back, Sidney Poitier. And they realized that they had a candidate who, through television, could have a dynamic effect on the race. And when Obama went up on television, that race was, in effect, over. He was good in person, and he was somehow even better when you looked at him on the little screen. Uh, the uh, Republicans, in the end, never threw much of a challenge at, at Obama. And after that uh, speech that he gave to the Democratic Convention in Boston, uh, he became very much in demand as a party speaker and campaigner all around the country. And so he was able to use his, that year of 2004 very much to his advantage to showcase himself in states all around the country and also, of course, to incur some obligations on the part of the candidates and the party people that he was in there to assist. Uh, that, in turn, I think, uh, sets the stage for where we are now and what is still to come. I think it's fair to say that uh, the ability that Obama had to take an effect, take his Illinois Senate primary campaign and move it one state over to Iowa and do exactly the same thing in Iowa that had worked so well for him in Illinois. Last summer, he could almost not find a story in any newspaper outside of Iowa about Barack Obama because he was avoiding the cities in Iowa and spending all of his time in small town and rural areas where he was making the kind of personal conquest that later turned out to be so significant for him. And at the same time, they knew that once they went up with their television, though it would be late, it would have the same kind of dramatic effect on a much larger audience. And that turned out to be the case. Uh, the opportunity that the summer gave him when there was almost no media coverage of Barack Obama to work on and develop and test and refine his stump speech turned out to be a very critical period for him because when the Iowa Democrats finally had their big annual event, the Jefferson Jackson dinner in the early fall, Barack Obama stole the show because even though he was the last speaker of the night at a very late hour and got almost no press coverage nationally because it was so late, inside the hall it was dramatic and it basically gave him the wherewithal to take that same speech and with minor minor twigs to deal with the current events to deliver that same speech over and over and over again to audiences that were increasing in size and in their fervor for this candidate. Uh, I think it was less noticed and perhaps even now less uh, well understood the phenomenal job 
that his organization was doing uh, to supplement and back up Obama's own efforts. Uh, I got a clue because the day after Oprah opened her pro-Obama tour in Des Moines, where the crowd was itself impressive, just waves and waves of people coming off of the skywires that linked the buildings in downtown Des Moines, down the escalators into this huge hall where thousands of them stood for the better part of two hours waiting to hear the speeches and then listening to the speeches. Uh, almost impossible to imagine that this was a, a campaign event, and it was more than that. It was a celebrity event with Oprah and another very good rendition of that very good stump speech that he had developed during the time he was out of sight. But the day after that, that was on a Saturday, and that Sunday I went down by myself to the Obama headquarters in Des Moines because I was very curious to see what they were doing with the cards that they had collected from these thousands of people as they came into the hall, which had the name, the phone number, the email address of the each of the people who was there listening. And what I found was that the headquarters on this Sunday, well in advance of the actual caucus state, they had dozens and dozens of people who were putting all that information into the computers, and the field director for Iowa said they will start getting calls tonight, and they will get more calls and more messages from us than you can believe in the runs to come. So I began to sense that the structure was being put in place behind Obama to exploit this remarkable appeal that he had generated by his own personal appearances. Uh, and that turned out, obviously, to be the, the case. But uh, it paid off, as you know, in Iowa. And the day after Iowa, it looked as if there was a phenomenon that was unleashed in the Democratic contest and would go on and on as long as he needed to keep doing it. Uh, but the, that lasted only until New Hampshire. And New Hampshire, I have to say, is still something of a mystery to me. Uh, I didn't see it coming. None of my colleagues saw it coming. And when I went back through my notebooks, knowing how it had come out on the flight back to Washington the day after the primary, I still couldn't figure out what had happened and why it had happened. Obviously, women were a very important central part of, of it. But as I said about John McCain, you have to begin with the character of the candidate. If Mrs. Clinton had given up the fight after Iowa, as many of your own campaign privately did in conversations with reporters, if she had wavered at that point, that race would have been over the next day after New Hampshire. But she has steel in her backbone, just as John McCain does, and she pulled it out simply by almost sheer willpower. And it was a really impressive thing, even if I didn't have a clue 
that it was happening as it was, in fact, happening. Uh, the uh, next step was obviously South Carolina, and there Obama caught a break because Bill Clinton turned out not to be able to mind his mouth or let his wife run her own campaign, and the backlash from his ill-advised, to put it mildly, comments about Barack Obama and race uh, had a clear backlash effect in the large black community in, 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 in South Carolina, and it hurt Hillary Clinton. Uh, the, once again, we were behind the curve, and many of us thought <coughs> after South Carolina, well, they will probably split the, the Super Tuesday states, but the momentum has clearly shifted now back to Obama. But <coughs> she won California, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and once again, she looked to be very much back in the, in the race. But then, as you know, Obama wins 11 straight primaries and caucuses, he has a huge advantage at this point in money and television, and I thought probably was going to be able to split with Mrs. Clinton, Ohio, and Texas. Well, once again, that was another night for frantic, quick rewriting of the story. They didn't split. She won them both, and once again put herself right back in the race. Where do things stand? Now, uh, the likelihood is that after Pennsylvania and the other nine states have had their say, uh, Obama will probably lead by somewhere in the vicinity of 150 delegates, counting both the elected delegates and the pledged delegates among the superdelegates. Uh, Clinton uh, should win Pennsylvania. It has a lot of Catholic voters a lot of union support there. The mayor of Philadelphia is working for Clinton, which may have some effect on holding down Obama's margin coming out of Philadelphia. And in Ed Rendell, the governor of Pennsylvania, Mrs. Clinton has a really important asset. Uh, he is popular in Philadelphia, where he was mayor for two terms, but even more popular probably in the Philadelphia suburbs, which came to see him a lot during his mayoral term and now obviously in his second term as governor. So he will be a formidable asset and gives Mrs. Clinton a significant advantage in that, in that state. Uh, then we have a few smaller states going to vote, but at the end of the process, my guess is that Obama will lead, but be significantly short of the 2024 needed for nomination. Michigan and Florida uh, may or may not ever be solved. I'm not smart enough to imagine how that one is going to be played out. But in the end, the superdelegates will probably choose the Democratic nominee. And the significant thing about the superdelegates is that they are 
either people who will be on the ballot themselves or they will be running the campaigns and financing the campaigns of those who will be on the ballot themselves. <coughs> and above all else, they will be judging their votes on the basis of who will help us most at the top of the ticket, Clinton or Obama. I don't know what their answer is going to be, but I'm sure it will be a very practical decision on each of their parts. Uh, the pressure is now beginning to generate on Mrs. Clinton to shorten the campaign, let the Democrats unite, and get on with business against John McCain. I see no reason for her doing that. Uh, she has shown more than once that she is not somebody to be dismissed until the votes are actually counted. She has real stick-to-itiveness, and she will stick to this campaign, <coughs> my guess is, until the time of the Democratic Convention, at least, and see what happens at that convention. Uh, I don't know what the odds are against her. They are certainly something of an underdog at this point, but I see no reason for her to think that she has some obligation to end the campaign at this point. And for the reporters, uh, now that we've had a chance to go home and get our laundry done before Pennsylvania votes, uh, most of us are hoping that it continues. Uh, quick thoughts about the general election, because you've been very patient already. Uh, I think it will be, in the end, a very close election. John McCain has several big problems that he faces <coughs> as a Republican nominee, obviously starting with Iraq. Uh, he is hostage to events in that country <coughs> beyond his control and no way that he can write the script for what's going on in Iraq. And because of that, he is hostage to public opinion in this country on the Iraq war. And that seems to have settled into a fairly firm majority saying whether we agree or disagree with the decision to go in, it's time to start getting out. That is obviously not John McCain's view. Uh, the economy is the second big problem uh, for him. Uh, no one knows how deep or long-lasting this recession will be, but it certainly looks as if it's going to be the dominant domestic story at the time of the election. Uh, he's, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, his third big problem is named George Bush. The longer he is in office, the more American people begin to think we'd really like to have a different president. And that is not likely to reverse either between now and election day. And the final possibility for McCain, problem for McCain, is that 
he has two really formidable opponents, either one of whom, for different reasons, can clearly give him a tussle in November. But against all that, uh, he can signal to uh, half of the uh, electorate that he is ready to move away from Bush, as he did to a significant degree with last week's speech on foreign policy. Uh, he can pick a vice presidential candidate who will symbolize him as a candidate of change and not of the status quo. There are any number of attractive Republican governors out there and other non-political figures. Nothing in the Constitution that says you have to be a politician to be number two on the ticket. And he may very well kind of surprise us by picking somebody with real stature, but not somebody directly out of the political world. He has already uh, uh, convinced most of the conservative wing of his party, and he can appeal to independents by uh, pointing out that he probably has sponsored more legislation and worked more effectively in bipartisan groups within the Senate, like the Gang of 14 <coughs> that forestalled the crisis over the judicial filibuster than anybody else in the race. I should mention one other issue that will undoubtedly surface in some form with Senator McCain, and that is the issue of his age. He will be the oldest president ever inaugurated if <coughs> he should win this election. Uh, on the Democratic side, whether it's Clinton or Obama, either one of them has repair work facing them within the Democratic Party. Uh, in Obama's case, he has to satisfy the many women and the party leaders who have early on committed to McCain, to McCain, to Clinton, and have uh, stayed with, with, with her despite all of the travails that, uh, that she's uh, faced. It's also the case that uh, there is just increasing amount of static conflict at the grassroots level between Clinton and Obama supporters. We saw a sample of that down in Texas in the second round of caucuses down, down there last week. But the fortunate thing is that there is a tried and true method of healing deep party divisions. As somebody said, that's why God invented the vice presidency. And I think that will clearly be a salve in this situation that the Democrats now face. I think it is very, very likely if this election nomination goes to the convention that the one thing you can put down is that whoever Clinton picks, he or she will, I guess he in that case, will be, have been prominent Obama supporter. And if Obama is the nominee, you can probably safely put down that his choice will be a prominent Clinton supporter. That really is about 
the best hope that the Democrats have for getting past this and into a general election against a man that I think will be a very tough opponent for either of them. Uh, the defeat uh, of, of either of them is going to be a searing experience for their backers. And the longer this goes on, it's like the NCAA tournament. It hurts more to get beat in the gang in the round of four than it does to get beat in the round of 64. And the closer we get to this convention and nomination being settled, the more grief there will be for whichever of these candidates winds up being on the losing side. Uh, in the issues front, we will certainly have them when we get to the general election. Foreign policy, including Iraq, economic policy, social policy, these candidates, the Democrats and McCain, are plainly on different sides of all of those basic issues. The Democrats will run against McCain on taxes, on Iraq, on abortion, on judges, and on health care. McCain will aggressively challenge either Democrat on Iraq and taxes and try to say as little as possible about health care and judges. Uh, the uh, should not uh, forget that while the Democrats, uh, our leadership is coming to a test by the nature of this long campaign, uh, they are also polishing their campaign skills against each other, and they face much more competition, even among the others in the field, than John McCain faced on the Republican side. The Democratic Congress is one other wild card, I think worth remembering for the general election. Uh, the ratings for Congress are even below those for President Bush. And in some respects, it's going to be very hard for either Obama or Clinton to deny their part in fashioning a record which clearly has been frustrating to large numbers of American voters. They are, that's their home, and they are sort of stuck with it in the same way that John McCain is stuck with whatever happens in Iraq. I think the odds continue to favor the, the Democrats to win in November. But I take comfort in something else. I think it is now very likely that the country is going to get a very well-prepared and capable president out of this election. And perhaps we will see in the end that the enthusiasm that's been building all year will produce the kind of election we haven't seen in a long time, one where both sides feel good about what has happened. Thank you very much. Or more, how are you coming?
Thank you. Yes. Yes. The question is, what role is technology, particularly electronic voting, and the technologies in different states and localities used around the country? What are the issues there? How does that pose a challenge in Hawaii? Uh, I'm looking to my colleague Tom Reed to answer that question uh, for all of you because he's much more knowledgeable about it than I am. Uh, I, I, I do not uh, purport to be at all an expert on voting systems and electronic voting and the old-fashioned way and so on. Uh, but I had never in my whole long life asked a question before the year 2000 of any election official, how many ballots are discarded at this point? There was never any curiosity on my part about that. Uh, we all learned in 2000 that you better ask that question. Uh, I think there have been, at least in some of the states I've been in, marginal improvements in recording and counting the votes. But I think it would be a miracle if we avoided controversies on those subjects during this next election, particularly if it is, as I suspect, going to be another very close Race. Yes. Uh, it's fun to speculate, but understand that we know nothing. And I'm almost permanently disqualified from the vice presidential speculation because the one time that I actually made a smart guess well in advance of the convention, the person that was nominated was Spiro Agnew. <laughs> and so how would you like to have that on your tombstone? Uh, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't uh, really know. Uh, the, uh, speculatively, if you accept the premise that Obama has to pick a Clinton supporter and Clinton has to pick an Obama supporter, uh, 
the uh, governors of Ohio and, and Pennsylvania, uh, Ted Strickland and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Ed Rendell, are both uh, very attractive politicians. Uh, Ohio, obviously, the swing state, and uh, uh, Pennsylvania always part of has to be part of any Democratic winning coalition. So uh, I would think that Obama might want to look in that direction, but that is pure speculation. Mrs. Clinton has a large number of options now because as time has gone on, as you know, more and more prominent Democrats have decided to endorse Obama. And I think Clinton, uh, excuse me, Obama uh, from Illinois can put that state in his own column without concern about what the vice presidential pick does. And I think he will look very carefully to see where is he most likely to add another state or two to his uh, base, if you will, and then particularly if there is a prominent Clinton supporter in that state, I think that person could very well end up being uh, the vice president. I should tell you at the cafeteria table when I finally got back to the Washington Post recently, I found that their speculation has centered on Jim Webb, the senator from Virginia, on the theory that uh, Obama would need a tough guy, somebody with military background, uh, and somebody who, if you will, has some appeal to the redneck vote. And Webb fits all of those criteria. Oh, and McCain, well, I mentioned in the, earlier uh, that McCain has a lot of attractive options, including uh, the governor of Florida, the governor of Minnesota. Uh, there is a former budget director uh, named Rob Portman, who lives in Cincinnati uh, and is a smart guy who could probably uh, fill in for McCain usefully if the debate turns to economic issues. And uh, uh, the, he has a lot of options. And uh, un, unlike uh, the Democrats, I think the notion that was very popular immediately after McCain cinched the Republican nomination, namely that there was a large and significant holdout group of conservatives that were not aboard yet, uh, I think that group has shrunk significantly in size already. And I think by the time we get to the Republican convention, and they've had a good look at these Democrats, uh, he will not have a lot of fence mending to do within his own party. Yes. Well, my assumption about Iraq, like many others I've made, is totally wrong. Uh, the one thing that I said and believed a year ago was that whatever happened, the Republican Party was not going to go into the next election, the 08 election, with 100,000 or more 
U.S. troops taking casualties in Iraq. That was wrong. Uh, once again, I vastly underestimated the stubbornness, if you will, or persistence of President Bush, and he will have those troops there. I still think it's a liability for the Republicans in this election year, uh, but I have to say that John McCain makes the best case I've heard from anybody who thinks there is still a good reason to stay there. When he talks about the, account, the consequences of a quick pullout and the rather intelligent way that he is now talking about the political situation in Iraq itself. I think as a potential president, John McCain, if he chooses to do so, can probably have more impact on the Maliki government than any other politician in this country simply by passing the word to them that if they do not want to see the United States elect somebody who is committed to an early and rapid pullout from Iraq, they better get their act together and give Americans some reason than better than they have now to think that staying in Iraq will accomplish something. Yes. I missed the last few words. Yes, the question is, uh, do I think that there will be enough of a democratic victory that it will provide coattails down the line for other Democratic candidates. I think the likelihood is that uh, either Clinton or Obama pulls in new voters, and that gives the Democrats all up and down the ballot potential for making gains. And we saw that, for example, uh, the kind of thing that can happen in the special election in Denny Hastert's old district out in Illinois. Uh, that was a turnout-driven election where the Democrats really worked that district, where they had a chance to win for the first time in their own eyes. And the Republicans just simply were not in the fight in that, in that district. If that happens in the presidential race, then it could be a very big year for the Democrats, races up and down the ballot. The counter-argument is that in every poll that it's taken these days, the generic Democratic advantage, for example, that would apply to an open-seat House race now, is much larger than the actual margin in the presidential race if you measure either Obama or Clinton against John McCain. 
McCain is just about even, and in some polls even a point or two ahead of either of those candidates at this point. So people say, well, if that race is going to be that close, uh, how is it going to help the Democrats pick up House and Senate seats? The answer is turnout. If they generate a very large turnout, and then the Democrats have a chance to make their case to a different electorate than we would normally have in this year. Uh, we've got time for one more, perhaps. If, if, yes, right. Well, I, I think we, I'm sorry, the question was what, how much effect will the controversy over <coughs> Reverend Jeremiah Wright <coughs> and some of his sermons have on Obama's race as time goes on. I think, let's start with what we know. The rhetoric that was quoted and shown millions of times on television was disturbing to a lot of people. Uh, that we know. Uh, what their reaction is to Obama's part in that story is, I think, still in flux. Uh, initially, it looked as if it might be very serious for him, and there were some polls that were being taken at the time that, in fact, showed an almost instant drop-off in support for Obama. The speech that he gave in Philadelphia was an extremely impressive speech. Intellectually, politically, his ability to take what was looked like a real piece of lemon and turn it into some kind of lemonade was really impressive politically. And I think substantively it was an amazingly thoughtful, uh, insightful speech to have given under the pressures of a campaign, knowing he had to try to put out that fire quickly. But the speech was a one-time event, and that loop of excerpts plays continually and will continue to play, I'm sure, through the whole election. Republicans will not pass on that issue. And there are people who are in no way racist who are still trying very much to satisfy themselves about the gap between Obama's own thoughtful, careful, willing to consider other views, uh, approach to politics and governing, and his saying, I cannot repudiate that preacher who obviously has not just a different style, but seemingly a really different view of the world. Now, he describes it to generational difference, and I'm sure in personal terms, that's right. Obama has led a privileged life, and Reverend Wright, like all other black men and women of that generation, was in one way or another a victim of a racist society. And I'm sure they see things very differently. But that was not going to put that issue to rest, nor should it, in my opinion view. Those are legitimate questions for people to raise about a man who Obama has identified 
not just as his spiritual counselor, but as somebody who is a friend, a long time part of his larger family, and in some respects, perhaps even a kind of a surrogate father for the senator. So I think these are legitimate questions, and whether they're legitimate or not, they can, certainly will continue to be raised as long as Obama is running for president. Thank you all very much.